Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Rip Foster Rides the Gray Planet. Chapter 3 Capture and Drive Commander O'Brien had not exaggerated. The residue of carbon and thorium on the blast tube walls was stubborn, dirty, and penetrating. It was caked in a solid sheet, but when scraped, it broke up into fine powder. The planeteers wore coveralls, gloves, and face masks with respirators, but that didn't prevent the stuff from sifting through onto their bodies. Rip, who directed the work and kept track of the radiation with a gamma-beta ion chamber and an alpha proportional counter, knew they would have to undergo personal decontamination. He took a reading on the ion chamber, only a few millirentgens of beta and gamma radiation. That was dangerous, because both beta particles and gamma rays could penetrate clothing and skin but the planeteers wouldn't get enough of a dose to do any harm at all. The alpha counter was high, but so long as they didn't breathe any of the dust in, it was not dangerous. The Scorpius had six tubes. Rip divided the planeteers into two squads, one under his direction and the other under Koa's. Each tube took a couple of hours of hard work. Several times during the cleaning, the men would leave the tube and go into the main mixing chamber while the tube was blasted with live steam to throw the stuff they had scraped off out into space. Each squad was on its last tube when a spaceman arrived. He saluted Rip. Sir, the safety officer says to secure the tubes. I could only mean one thing, deceleration. Rip rounded up his men. We're finished. The safety officer passed the word to secure the tubes, which means we're going to decelerate, he smiled grimly. You all know they gave us this job just out of pure love for the planeteers. So remember it when you go through the control room to the decontamination chamber. The planeteers nodded enthusiastically. Rip led the way from the mixing chamber through the heavy safety door into the engine control room. His entrance was met with poorly concealed grins by the spaceman. Halfway across the room, Rip suddenly turned and bumped into Sergeant Major Koa. Koa fell to the deck, arms flailing for balance but flailing against his protective clothing. The other planeteers rushed to pick him up, and somehow all their arms and hands beat against each other. The protective clothing was saturated with fine dust. It rose from them in a choking cloud, was picked up and dispersed by the ventilation system. It was contaminated dust. The automatic radiation safety equipment filled the ship with an ear-splitting buzz of warning. Spacemen clapped emergency respirators to their faces and spoke unkindly of Rip's planeteers in the saltiest space language they could think of. Rip and his men picked up Koa and continued their march to the decontamination room, grinning under their respirators at the consternation around them. There was no danger to the spacemen since they had clapped on the respirators the moment the warning sounded. But even a little contamination meant the whole ship had to be gone over with instruments and the ventilation system would have to be cleaned. The deputy commander met Rip at the door of the radiation room. Above the respirator, his face looked furious. Lieutenant, he bellowed, haven't you any more sense than to bring contaminated clothing into the engine control room? Rip was sorry the deputy commander couldn't see him grinning under his respirator. He said innocently, No, sir, I haven't got any more sense than that, the deputy grated. I'll have you up before the disciplinary board for this. Rip was enjoying himself thoroughly. I don't think so, sir. The regulations are very clear. They say, It is the responsibility of the safety officer to ensure compliance with all safety regulations, both by complete instructions to personnel and personal supervision. 
Your safety officer didn't instruct us and didn't supervise us. You better run him up before the board himself. The deputy commander made harsh sounds into his respirator. Rip had him and he knew it. He thought even a stupid planeteer had enough sense to obey radiation safety rules, he yelled. He was wrong, Rip said gently. Then just to make himself perfectly clear, he added, Commander O'Brien was within his rights when he made us rake radiation, but he forgot one thing. Planeteers know the regulations, too. Excuse me, sir. I have to get my men decontaminated. Inside the decontamination chamber, the planeteers took off their masks and faced Rip with admiring grins. For a moment, he grinned back, feeling pretty good. He had held his own with the spacemen, and he sensed that his men liked him. All right, he said briskly. Strip down and get into the showers. In a few moments, they were all standing under the chemically treated water, washing off the contaminated dust. Rip paid special attention to his hair because that was where the dust was most likely to stick. He had it well lathered when the water suddenly cut off. At the same moment, the cruiser shuddered slightly as control blasts stopped its spinning and left them all weightless. Rip saw instantly what had happened. He called, All right, men, down on the floor. The planeteers instantly slid to the shower deck. In a few moments, the pressure of deceleration pushed at them. I like spacemen, Rip said wryly. They wait until just the right moment before they cut the water and decelerate. Now we're stuck in our birthday suits until we land, wherever that may be. Corporal Nels Peterson spoke up in a soft Stockholm accent. Never mind, sir. They'll get back at them. We always do. When the Scorpius decelerated and started maneuvering for a landing, Rip did some rapid calculations. He knew the acceleration and deceleration rates of cruisers of this class measured in terms of time, and part of his daily routine on the space platform had been to examine the daily astroflot, which gave the positions of all planets and other large bodies within the solar system. There was only one possible destination. Mars. Rip's pulse quickened. He had always wanted to visit the red planet. Of course, he had seen all the films, audio mags, and books on the planet, and he had tried to see the weekly space cast. He had a good idea of what the planet was like, but reading or viewing was not actually like landing and taking a look for himself. Of course, they would land at Marsport. It was the only landing area equipped to handle nuclear-drive cruisers. The cruiser landed and deceleration cut to zero. At the same moment, the water came on. Rip hurriedly finished cleaning up, dressed, then took his radiation instruments and carefully monitored his men as they came from the shower. Private Doust had to go back for another try at getting his hair clean, but the rest were all right. Rip handed his instruments to Koa. You monitor Doust when he finishes. I want to see what's happening. He hurried from the chamber and made his way down the corridors toward the engine control room. There was a good possibility he might get a call from O'Brien with instructions to take his men off the ship. He might finally learn what he was assigned to do. As he reached the engine control room, Commander O'Brien was giving instructions to his spacemen on the stowage of equipment that evidently was expected aboard. Rip felt a twinge of disappointment. If the Scorpius had landed to take on supplies of some kind, his assignment was probably not on Mars. He started to approach the commander with a question about his orders and then thought better of it. He stood quietly near the control panel and watched. The airlock hissed and then slid open. A Martian stood in the entryway, a case on his shoulder. Rip watched him with interest. He had seen Martians before on the space platform, but 
He had never gotten used to them. They were human, still. He tried to figure out, as he had before, what it was that made them strange. It wasn't the blue whiteness of their skins, nor the very large, expressionless eyes. It was something about their bodies. He studied the Martian's figure carefully. He was slightly taller and more slender than the average Earthman, but his chest measurements would be about the same. Nor were his legs very much longer. Suddenly, Rip thought he had it. The Martian's arms and legs joined their torso at a slightly different angle, giving them an angular look. That was what made him look like a caricature of a human, although he was human, of course, as human as any of them. Rip saw that other Martians were in the airlock, all carrying cases of varying sizes and shapes. They came through into the control room and put them down, then turned without a word and hurried back into the lock. They were all breathing heavily, Rip noticed. Of course, the artificial atmosphere inside the spaceship must have seemed very heavy and moist to them after the thin, dry air of Mars. The lock worked and the Martians were replaced by others. They, too, deposited their cases. But these cases were bigger and heavier, It took four Martians to carry each one, which meant they weighed close to half a ton each. The Martians could carry more than double an Earthman's capacity. When the lock worked next time, a planeteer captain came in. He breathed the heavy air appreciatively, fingering the oxygen mask he had to wear outside. He saluted Commander O'Brien and reported, This is all, sir. We fill the order exactly as Terra sent in. Is there anything else you need? O'Brien turned to his deputy. Find out, he ordered. This is our last chance. We have plenty of basic supplies, but we may be short of audio mags and other things for the men. He turned his back on the planetier captain and walked away. The captain grinned at O'Brien's retreating back, then walked over to Rip. They shook hands. I'm Southwick, SOS2, Canadian. Rip introduced himself and said he was an American. He added, Aside from my men, you're the first human being I've seen since we made space. Southwick chuckled. Trouble with spacemen? Well, you're not the first. Talking about assignments wasn't considered good practice, but Rip was burning with curiosity. You don't by any chance know what my assignment is, do you? The captain's eyebrows went up. Don't you? Rip shook his head. O'Brien hasn't told me. I don't know a thing, Southwick said. We got instructions to pack up a pretty strange assortment of supplies for the Scorpius. That's all I know. The order was in special cipher, though, so we're all wondering about it. The deputy commander returned, reported to O'Brien, and then walked up to Rip and Southwick. Nothing else needed, he said curtly. We'll get off at once. Southwick nodded, shook hands with Rip, and said in a voice that the deputy could hear, Don't let these spacemen bother you. Trouble with them is they all want to be planeteers and couldn't pass the intelligence tests. He winked, then hurried to the airlock. Spacemen worked quickly to clear the deck of the new supplies, stowing them in the nearby workroom. Within five minutes, the engine control room was clear. The safety officer signaled, and the radiation warning sounded. Taking off. Rip hurried to the squad room and climbed into the acceleration chair. The other planeteers were already in the room, most of them in their bunks. Koa slid into the chair beside him. Find out anything, sir. Nothing useful. A bunch of equipment came aboard, but it was in plain crates. I couldn't tell what it was. Acceleration pressed them into their chairs. Rip sighed, picked up an audio circuit set, and put it over his ears. Might as well listen to what the circuit had to offer. There was nothing else to do. 
Music was playing, and it was the kind he liked. He settled back to relax and listen. Brenchless came sometime later. It woke Rip up from a sound sleep. He blinked, glancing at the chronometer. Great cosmos! With that length of acceleration, they must be high vacuuming for Jupiter. He waited until the ship went into the gravity spin. Then he got out of his chair and stretched. He was hungry. Coe was still sleeping. He decided not to wake him. The sergeant major would see the men ate when they wanted to. In the mess room, only one table was occupied, by Commander O'Brien. Rip gave him a civil hello and started to sit alone at another table. To his surprise, O'Brien beckoned him over. Sit down, the spaceman invited gruffly. Rip did and wondered what was coming next. We'll start to decelerate in about ten minutes, O'Brien said. Eat while you can. He signaled and a spaceman brought Rip the day's rations in an individual plastic carton with thermal lining. The planeteer opened it and found a block of mixed vegetables, a slab of space meat, and two units of biscuits. He wrinkled his nose. Space meat he didn't mind. It was chewy but tasty. The mixed vegetable ration was chosen for its food value and not for taste. A good mouthful of earth grass would be a lot more palatable. He sliced off pieces of the warm stuff and chewed it thoughtfully watching O'Brien's face for a clue as to why the commander had invited him to sit down. It wasn't long in coming. Your orders are the strangest things I've ever read, O'Brien stated. Do you know where we're going? Rip figured quickly. They had accelerated for six and a half hours. Now, ten minutes after Brenchless, they were going to start deceleration? That meant they had really high acted to get somewhere in a hurry. He calculated swiftly. I don't know exactly, he admitted, but from the ship's actions, I'd say we were aiming for the far side of the asteroid belt. Anyway, we fall short of Jupiter. There was a glimmer of respect in O'Brien's glance. That's right. Know anything about asteroids, Foster? Rip considered. He knew what he had been taught in astronomy and astrogation. Between Mars and Jupiter lay a broad belt in which the asteroids swung. They ranged from Cirrus, a tiny world only 480 miles in diameter, down to chunks of rock the size of a house. No accurate count of asteroids, or minor planets as they were called, had been made, but the observatory on Mars had charted the orbits of over 100,000, most of them only a mile or two in diameter. Others, much smaller, had never been charted by anyone. One leading astronomer had estimated there were as many as 50,000 asteroids filling the belt. I know the usual stuff about them, he told O'Brien. I haven't any special knowledge. O'Brien blinked. Then why do they assign you? What's your specialty? Astrophysics. That might explain it. Second specialty? Astrogation. He couldn't resist adding. That's what scientists call space navigation, Commander. O'Brien started to retort, then apparently thought better of it. I hope you'll be able to carry out your orders, Lieutenant. He said stiffly. I hope, but not much. I don't think you can. Rip asked, "'What are my orders, sir?' O'Brien waved in the general direction of the wall. "'Out there, somewhere in the asteroid belt, Foster, there's a little chunk of matter about a thousand yards in diameter, a very minor planet. We know its approximate coordinates as of two days ago, but we don't know much else. It happens to be a very important minor planet.' Rip waited, intent on the commander's words. "'It's important,' O'Brien continued, because it happens to be pure thorium. Rip gasped. 
thorium, the rare radioactive element just below uranium in the periodic table of the elements, the element used to power this very ship. What a find, he said in a hushed voice. No wonder the job was Federation Priority A with Space Council security. What do I do about it? he asked. O'Brien grinned. Write it, he said. Your orders say you're to capture the asteroid, blast it out of orbit, and drive it back to Earth. Chapter 4 First, find the needle. Rip walked into the squad room with a copy of the orders in his hand. After one look at his face, the planeteers clustered around him. Santos woke those who were sleeping while Rip waited. We have our orders, men, he announced. Suddenly he laughed. He couldn't help it. At first, he had been completely overcome by the responsibility and the magnitude of the job. But now he was getting used to the idea, and he could see the adventure in it. Ten wild planeteers riding an asteroid. Sunny space. What a great big thermonuclear stunt. Koa remarked, Must be good. Lieutenant is getting a real atomic charge out of it. Sit down, reported. You'd better, because you might fall over when you hear this. Listen, men. Two days ago, the freighter Altair passed through the asteroid belt on a run from Jupiter to Mars. He sat down, too, because deceleration was starting. As his men looked at each other in surprise at the quickness of it, he continued. The old bucket found something we need. An asteroid of pure thorium. The enlisted planeteers knew as well as he what that meant. There were whistles of astonishment. Koa slapped his big thigh. By Gemini, what do we do about it, sir? We capture it, Rip said. We blast it loose from its orbit and ride it back to Earth. He sat back and watched their reactions. At first they were stunned. Trudeau, the Frenchman, muttered to himself in French. Domenico, the Italian, held up his hands and exclaimed, Santa Maria! Kemp, one of the American privates, asked, How do we do it, sir? Rip grinned. That's a good question. I don't know. That stopped them. They stared at him. He added quickly, Supplies came aboard at Marsport. We'll get the clue when we open them up. Headquarters must have known the method when they assigned us and ordered the equipment. Koa stood up. He was the only one who could have moved upright against the terrific deceleration. He walked to a rack at the side of the squad room and took down a copy of the space navigator, then resumed his seat. He looked questioningly at Rip. Anything else, sir? I thought I'd read what there is about asteroids. Go ahead, Rip agreed. He sat back as Koa began to recite the data there was, but he didn't listen. His mind was going ten astro units a second. He thought he knew why he had been chosen for the job. Word of the priceless asteroid must have reached headquarters only a short time before he was scheduled to leave the space platform. He could imagine the speed with which the specialists at Terra Base had acted. They had sent orders instantly to the fastest cruiser in the area, the Scorpius, to stand by for further instructions. Then their personnel machines must have whirred rapidly, electronic brains searching for the nearest available planetier officer with an astrophysics specialty and astrogation training. He could imagine the reaction when the machine turned up the name of a brand new lieutenant, but the choice was logical enough. He knew that most, if not all, of the planetier astrophysicists were either in high or low space on special work. Chances were that there was no astrophysicist nearer than Ganymede, so the choice had fallen to him. 
He had a mental image of the terror-based scientists feeding data into the electronic brain, taking the results and writing fast orders for the men and supplies needed. If his estimate was correct, work at the Planetier base must have been finished within an hour of the time word was received. When they opened the cases brought aboard by the Martians, he would see that the method of blasting the asteroid into a course for Earth was all figured out for him. Rip was anxious to get at those cases. Not until he saw the method of operation could he begin to figure his course. There was no possibility of getting at the stuff until Brenchlus. He put the problem out of his mind and concentrated on what his men were saying. And he slugged into the asteroid going close to seven AUs, Santos was saying. The little Filipino corporal shrugged expressively. Rip recognized the story. It was about a supply ship, a chemical drive rocket job that had blasted into an asteroid a few years back. Private Doust shrugged too. Too bad. Ivac was waiting for him. Nothing you can do when old man nothing wants you. Rip listened, interested. This was the talk of old space hands. They had given the high vacuum of empty space a personality, calling it high vac or old man nothing. With understandable fatalism, they believed, or said they believed, that when high vacuum really wanted you, there was nothing you could do. Rip had come across an interesting bit of word knowledge. Spacemen and planeteers alike had a way of using the phrase by Gemini. Gemini, of course, was the constellation of the twins, Castor and Pollux, both were useful stars for astrogation. The Roman horse soldiers of ancient history had sworn by Gemini or by the twins. The Romans believed the stars were the famous Greek warriors Castor and Pollux, placed in the heavens after their deaths. In later years, the phrase degenerated to simply by Gemini, and its meaning had been lost. Now, although few spacemen knew the history of the phrase, they were using it again, and correctly. Other space talk grew out of space itself and not history. For instance, the worst that could happen to a man was to have his helmet broken. Let the transparent globe be shattered, and the results were both quick and fatal. Hence, the off-heard threat, I'll bust your bubble. Speaking of bubbles, Rip realized suddenly that he and his men would have to live in bubbles and spacesuits while on the asteroid. None of the minor planets were big enough to have an atmosphere or much of a gravity. If only he could get a look into those cases. But the ship was still decelerating, and he would have to wait. He put his head against the chair rest and settled down to wait as patiently as he could. Brenchless was a long time coming. When the deceleration finally stopped, Rip didn't wait for gravity. He hauled himself out of the chair and squad room and went down the corridor hand over hand. He headed straight for where the supplies were stacked. His planeteers close behind him. Commander O'Brien arrived at the same time. We're starting to scan for the asteroid, he greeted Rip. It may be some time before we find it. Where are we, sir? Rip asked. Just above the asteroid belt near the outer edge. We're beyond the position where the asteroid was sighted, moving along where the Altair figured its orbit. I'm not stretching space, Foster, when I tell you we're hunting for a needle in a junk pile. This part of space is filled with more objects than you can imagine and the old register on the rad screens. We'll find it, Rip said confidently. O'Brien nodded. Yes, but it will probably take some hunting. Meanwhile, let's get at those cases. The supply clerk is on his way. The supply clerk arrived, issued tools to the planeteers, then opened a plastic case attached to one of the boxes and produced lists. As the planeteers opened and unpacked the crates, 
Rippon O'Brien inspected, and the clerk checked the items off. The first case produced a complete chemical cutting unit with an assortment of cutting tips and adapters. Rip looked around for the gas cylinders and saw none. Something's wrong. Where's the fuel supply for the torch, he objected. The supply clerk inspected the lists, shuffled the papers, and found the answer. The following, he read, are to be supplied from the Scorpius complement. One landing boat, large, model 28, eight each, oxygen cutting unit gas bottles, four each, chemical cutting unit fuel tanks. Well, that's that, Rip said, relieved. Apparently he was supposed to do a lot of cutting on the asteroid, probably the thorium itself. The hot flame of the torch could melt any known substance. The torch itself could melt in unskilled hands. The next case yielded a set of astrogation instruments, carefully cradled in a soft, rubbery plastic. Rip left them in the case and put them to one side. As he did so, Sergeant Major Koa let out a whistle of surprise. Lieutenant, look at this. Corporal Santos exclaimed, Well, stonker me for a stupid space squid. Do they expect us to find any people on this asteroid? The object was a portable rocket launcher designed to fire light attack rockets. It was a standard item of fighting equipment for the planeteers. I recognize the shape of those cases over there, Koa said. Ten racks of rockets for the launcher, one rack to a case. Rip scratched his head. He was as puzzled as Santos. Why supply fighting equipment for a crew on an asteroid that couldn't possibly have any living thing on it? He left the puzzle for the future and called for more cases. The next two yielded projectile-type handguns for ten men with ammunition and standard planetier space knives. The space knives had hidden blades, which were driven forth violently when the operator pushed a thumb lever, releasing the gas in a cartridge contained in the handle. The blade snapped forth with enough force to break a bubble or to cut through a spacesuit. They were designed for the sole purpose of space hand-to-hand combat. The planeteers looked at each other. What were they up against that such equipment was needed on a barren asteroid? Private Doust opened a box that contained a complete toolkit, the tools designed to be handled by men in spacesuits. Yards of wire for several purposes were wound on reels. Two hand-driven dynamos capable of developing great power were included. Corporal Peterson found a small case which contained books, the latest astronomical data sheets, and a space computer and scratchboard. These were obviously for Rip's personal use. He examined them. There were all the references he would need for computing orbit speed and just about anything else that might be required. He had to admire the thoroughness of whoever had written the order. The unknown planeteer had assumed that the space cruiser would not have all the astrophysics references necessary and had included a copy of each. Several large cases remained. Koa ripped the side from one and let out an exclamation. Rip hurried over and looked in. His stomach did a quick orbital reverse. Great cosmos! That thing was an atomic bomb! Commander O'Brien peered over his shoulder and peered at the lettering on the cylinder. Equivalent 10KT! In other words, the explosion the harmless-looking cylinder could produce was equivalent to 10,000 tons of TNT, a chemical explosive no longer in actual use, but still used for comparison. Rip asked huskily, Any more of those things? The importance of the job was becoming increasingly clear to him. Nuclear explosives were not used without good reason. The fissionable material was too valuable for other purposes. 
The size came off the remaining cases. Some of them held fat tubes of conventional rocket fuel in solid form, the detonators carefully packed separately. There were three other atomic bombs, making four in all. There were two bombs each of five kilotons and ten kilotons. Commander O'Brien looked at the amazing assortment of stuff. Does that check, clerk? The spaceman nodded. Yes, sir. Found another notation that says food supplies and personal equipment to be supplied by the Scorpius. Well, that me for a Venusian robot? O'Brien muttered. He tugged at his ear. You could dump me on that asteroid with this assortment of junk, and I'd spend the rest of my life there. I don't see how you can use this stuff to move an asteroid. Maybe that's why the Federation sent planeteers, Rip said, and was sorry the moment the words came out. O'Brien's jaw muscles bulged, but he held his temper. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that, Foster. We have to get along until the asteroid is safely in an orbit around Earth. After that, I'm going to take a great deal of pleasure in feeding you to the space fish, piece by piece. It was Rip's turn to get red. I'm sorry, Commander. Please accept my apologies. He certainly had a lot to learn about space etiquette. Apparently there was a time for spacemen and planeteers to fight each other, and a time for them to cooperate like friends. He hoped he'd catch on after a while. I'm sure you'll be able to figure out what to do with this stuff, O'Brien said. If you need help, let me know. And Rip knew his apology was accepted. The deputy commander arrived, drew O'Brien aside and whispered in his ear. The commander let out an exclamation and started out of the room. At the door, he turned. Better come along, Foster. Rip followed as the commander led the way to his own quarters. At the door, two space officers were waiting, their faces grave. O'Brien motioned them to chairs. All right, let's have it. The senior space officer held out a sheet of flimsy. It was pale blue, the color used for highly confidential documents. Sir, this came in Space Council special cipher. Read it aloud, O'Brien ordered. Yes, sir. It's addressed to you, this ship, from Planeteer Intelligence, Marsport. Consop's cruiser departed general direction your area. Agents report crew Altair may have leaked data regarding asteroid. Take appropriate action. It's signed Williams SOS Commanding. Rip saw the meaning of the message instantly. The consolidation of people's governments of Earth, traditional enemies and rivals of the Federation of Free Governments, needed radioactive materials as badly or worse than the Federation. In space, it was first come, first take. They had to find the asteroid quickly. It was to prevent CONSOPs from knowing of the asteroid that security measures had been taken in the first place. They hadn't worked because of loose space chatter at Marsport. O'Brien issued quick orders. Now get this. We have to work fast. Accelerate 50%. Same course. I want two men on each screen. If anything of the right size shows up, decelerate until we can get mass and albedo measurements. Snap to it. The space officers started out, but O'Brien stopped them. Use one long-range screen for scanning high space toward Mars. Let me know the minute you get a blip, because it probably will be that Consop's cruiser. Have the missile ports cleared for auction? Rip's eyes opened. Clear the missile ports? That meant getting the cruiser in fighting shape, ready for instant action. You wouldn't fire on that Consop's cruiser, would you, sir? O'Brien gave him a grim smile. Certainly not, Foster. It's against orders to start anything with Consop's cruisers. You know why. The situation is so tense that a fight between two spaceships might plunge Earth into war. His smile got even grimmer.
But you never know. A consop's ship might fire first, or an accident might happen. The commander leaned forward. We'll find that asteroid for you, Mr. Planetier. We'll put you on it and see you on your way. Then we'll ride space along with you. And if any consop's thieves try to take over and collect that thorium for themselves, we'll find Kevin O'Brien waiting. That's a promise, boy. Rip felt a lot better. He sat back in his chair and regarded the commander with mixed respect and something else. Against his will, he was beginning to like the man. No doubt about it, the Scorpius was well named, and the sting in the Scorpion's tail was O'Brien himself.